Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you for the promise that your word does not return void, but will accomplish what you have set out for it to accomplish. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you give us to illumine our hearts and our minds to show us our sin, our misery, the impossibility of us keeping your standard of living whole lives, and then of showing us your provision, your mercy, of taking us to heaven's mercy seat and showing us the beauty and the wonder of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would understand the gospel and not just its information, but its dynamics, how it works and how it works specifically. Holy Spirit, apply the gospel to our lives as we come before you in your word now this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 12, actually a very challenging part of Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let us now hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So how are you doing with that? Piece of cake, right? I don't know about you all, I was stuck after let love be genuine. I was lost after all of that, let alone that whole series of one imperative after another what it looks like. It's easy to have Christian community, right? No hard work at all. Anybody who tells you the Christian life, by the way, is not hard work, show them this passage and and basically say, I dare you to say that the Christian life, living it out biblically, really taking the Word of God seriously, is not difficult. Here's what we're doing. We're doing a series of sermons, and this is kind of why we're looking at various scriptures Uh, leading up to Easter on something that I'm calling the cruciform life, and that is a life shaped by the cross. Jesus himself, all the Gospels record this. I'll just read for you how Luke narrated Jesus' words. But Jesus gave us the non-negotiable, okay? In other words, the non-negotiable, no choice here in terms of discipleship, when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Probably there is nowhere in 
in this, is this more necessary than in living a life shaped by love? And that's what Romans 12 is talking about. The cruciform life is a life shaped by love. Love involves learning how to lay down your life, lay down your goals, lay down your ambitions, lay down your agenda for the sake of the other person. It is not this sentimental, sappy, worldly kind of love that's just how you feel. Love is kind of hardcore when you read it, what it's really saying here. And yet, just to even press the envelope a little bit further, in 1 John chapter 4, to talk about, again, the non-negotiable of love, John writes, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. Notice the order he puts it. We would have liked whoever abides in God, since God is love, God, we abide in, you know, abiding in God is abiding in love. But no, he says first, whoever abides in love abides in God. Meaning John's getting across, if you don't live a life of love, if you don't abide in love, you're not abiding in God. So dismiss the necessity and the priority of love at your own peril. So what does it look like? See, before I dive into the text, let me just bring out a couple of introductory type things that I just want to kind of remind us to kind of keep in, keep in mind, so to speak, as we go through this very challenging section of Paul's letter on how to live a life shaped by love. One of the things is I think if we really as a church begin to grow in this, obviously we'll never make it, we'll never arrive, so to speak, but if we really took this seriously, what an impact this could have on the world. There's a writer, he's out of the University of Virginia, his name is James Davison Hunter, and he wrote a book several years back called To Change the World. And in it, he wrote the following. He said, at root, a theology, what he says is to change the world calls the Christian community to faithful presence. So not this radical, I'm going to go transform everything, I'm going to end suffering, that'd be impossible anyway. But he's calling the church to a faithful presence, a faithful manifestation of love. And he says, at root, a theology of faithful presence begins with an acknowledgement of God's faithful presence to us, and that his call upon us is that we be faithfully present to him in return. He writes, we are present to God as a worshiping community, fully present through participation in the sacraments, collective adoration, repentance, contemplation, intercession, devotion, and service. He says, in that context, we are present to him through the disciplines of individual devotion, prayer, meditation, fasting, study, simplicity, and solitude. He says, in this, Christians acknowledge that there is no other God before us, that our wills are his, and that in all of life his kingdom has indeed come. In other words, faithful presence involves taking up your cross daily, following Jesus, laying down your life to love him and to love others. Chapter 12 began a new section of Paul's letter. See, chapters 1 through 11 in the letter to the Romans, what is Paul doing? He's describing the beautiful doctrine, the theology of the gospel. And then in beginning, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, by the mercies of God, in view of God's mercy, and he goes out to list very fundamental, very practical ways that we live out of the mercy of God. All of these things, see, here's one other thing we have to keep in mind 
as we take a look at this text of Scripture. Do not read this text as a list of imperatives just to try to follow. This text is meant to be the context of what it looks like to live out of the mercy of God. It begins, theologians call this the indicative and the imperative. The imperatives always flow out of the indicative. And the indicative here is by the mercies of God. The mercies what? God's justification, his adoption, his regenerating you, his sanctifying. All the things of the gospel that he's been talking about in, chap- in, verses one, in chapters 1 through 11. Now he's basically saying, here's what it looks like practically in your life. And what it looks like is a life shaped by love. Jack Miller, who was a person very, very influential on my life, he used to say, he used to describe, you know how the catechism question says that what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And he would say, well, what is the glory of God? And he used to say that the glory of God is the difference between what I can do naturally and what I can only do by the grace of God. He says, that difference is the glory of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Do you think any of us can live that kind of love that Paul talked about, that we're about to go into in some detail? If you're thinking you can do that naturally, this is not just talking to you about the difficulty of love. This is the impossibility of love. This is bringing us, in a sense, face-to-face with how impossible it is to love, which leaves us... The only choice is to fly to the mercy seat of God. By the mercies of God. My goal for this sermon is I want you to go out, magna, I want Jesus to be so huge and so large to you that you see that you are one convicted, there is no way I can love like this. And then to go, what is the mercy of God? That he would absolutely love me, give himself for me, And then by his spirit. So what is the difference between what I can do naturally and what I do by God's grace? It is his glory. We're going to look at this passage of scripture from three different perspectives. This passage basically progresses. It's a progression and it progresses in the following ways. It starts with ordinary love. And ordinary love is hard hard enough. To challenging love. To finally impossible love. Ordinary love. Look with me at verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints And seek to show hospitality. Paul begins with a series of imperatives, a series of commands, basically about what communal life, community life looks like in the normal, everyday, ordinary relationships of church. Let love be genuine. In other words, let it be sincere. Let it not be phony. Don't have simply a culture of niceness. Love one another with brotherly affection. May your love be real. May it be heartfelt. Outdo one another, almost like it's a competition. Wouldn't this be amazing if this were our competition in church? 
Talk about a vision of manifesting the presence of love in our community. Is it any wonder Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples by your love one another? Imagine if we made it our goal to absolutely outdo one another, to basically say, okay, I see how Vic is loving. I'm going to outdo him in showing honor. I see how this one is loving. I'm going to outdo him in love. Wouldn't that be amazing if we began to even... I think it'd be a Spruce Creek miracle if we even made that our goal. And Paul's going on to share this is his vision. Now, Dan Allender has written a book that I think is one of the best books dealing practically on the topic of love. It's called Bold Love. And in it, and Dan Allender is calling us to honesty with the topic of love. Because in it, he writes, all of us want out sometimes. Love is too hard. Forgiveness seems impossible. Why try when our efforts to love seem to make matters worse? Have you ever felt that way? You're going to move towards somebody, you love them, oh, it's only made things worse. Try to do better. What is the famous saying? No good deed goes unpunished. Allender's calling us to look at this honestly. Why try when our efforts to love seem to make matters worse? He writes, even in our best relationships, the wounds of the battle hardly seem worth it sometimes. But it's hard for a human heart to live long or well without love. Love offers life. It softens the dark moments and keeps the heartbeat of hope alive. Love is both a mysterious friend and at times a terrible disappointment. Love one day satisfies and the next seems to strip the heart bare before the cold winds of betrayal. If we are honest, we often have mixed feelings about love. Now, I'll be honest with you. If this doesn't resonate with you, if you don't feel at least sometimes, I'm not sure you're really wrestling with this text. If you don't feel the reality of what Allender is talking about, the ambivalence we have, the difficulty, the challenge of just ordinary love, I'm not sure you're really wrestling or engaging with what the Bible discusses and lays out for us with love. C.S. Lewis said it best. C.S. Lewis says the only way to be sure not to have your heart broken is never give it away. He's absolutely right. You don't want to be hurt? You want to protect yourself? Don't give your heart away. Don't love. You'll protect yourself, but what did Lewis say? Your heart will shrivel up until eventually it dies. So look at what Paul is saying here. He's talking about real love. This is not sentimental love. We talked about those initial commands about love being genuine, not being phony. In a sense, when he says that, he's basically going, how in the world, it almost seems like when he says, hold fast to what is good, hate or abhor what is evil, let love be genuine, never let it be hypocritical, never. Is he saying, only love when I feel like it? Well, of course, that wouldn't be his answer. So what is he saying? He's saying we need a gospel approach to the situation, the cruciform life, the cruciform approach. And one commentator said it well. He says what we have to do is we have to love while repenting. In other words, according to the text, remember that we're loving by remembering the mercies of God. In other words, you need to say to yourself, see, why is it that we don't feel like loving? Think about it. Why is love often not genuine? Why do we not want to love somebody? Because we look at them, we go, they're difficult. They don't do what I want. They betray me. I don't really like them. 
Maybe they smell. Who knows what the reason might be, right? But for some reason, we make this judgment, we make this evaluation that they're difficult, that they're hard to get along with, that they're unlovely and unattractive. What does the gospel approach say? See, the gospel approach is you have to preach the mercies of God. And you know where the mercies of God begins? The mercies of God begins by you taking a correct assessment of yourself and saying to yourself, I am so much more unlovely and unattractive than this person. And by the mercies of God, Jesus died for me while I was still unlovely and unattractive. See, you will only love, even in the ordinary sense of it, you will only love to the degree that you are preaching the gospel to yourself. See, again, I have another goal for you. I want you to become better preachers of the gospel to yourself than I am to you. I get, I get you one half hour a week. You get yourself 167 and a half hours a week. If this is all the gospel you're getting, one half hour is not going to even come close to standing in the room with 167 and a half hours. And one of the things to bring you face to face with the difficulty of the Christian life is this topic of love. See, one of the ways to practically preach the gospel to yourself is to realize, why am I struggling with this person? I find them unlovely and unattractive. What is the mercy of God? I've got to preach. I've got to come and realize I'm calling somebody unlovely and unattractive, not realizing how unlovely and unattractive I might be to God. And how did God move towards me? The cross. He moved towards me by dying for me. Philippians 2 says he didn't cons- Jesus didn't consider equality with God, the glory of God, his godlike nature something to be grasped, but he, what, he emptied himself. In a sense, he denied himself and became obedient, even obedient to death, and not any ordinary death, but death on a cross, a shameful death, a ridiculed death, a mocked death, a death where he was alienated. So that the most attractive could die for the unattractive. So that the most lovely could die for the unlovely. See, and these are where the other admonitions come in. Where Paul tells us, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. When you look at what love requires, it is only to the degree that you are not being lazy in zeal. Zeal for what? For the gospel. For preaching the mercies of God to yourself. When you see the realities of love, the only thing you have to battle against it is the gospel. And you see, the only way for you to grow in love is to not be lazy, to not be hesitant, to not be reluctant, to not be slothful in zeal for Christ. The question is, do we come face to face with what, in a sense, the law requires? That the law requires us. We're held accountable to love since love is the fulfillment. The whole law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. How seriously do we take the word of God. And then when you begin to look at it, then you go, my only hope is the mercy of God. And you're what? You're fervent in spirit. I can't get to the cross fast enough. I can't get... How large does Christ loom when you see you don't love, you don't want to love, you refuse to love, and God will hold you accountable to that. 
and your only hope then is Jesus. See, it's not enough that we know the truths about the gospel. We need to know the dynamics of how the gospel works. We need to be able to appropriate and apply the gospel in the power of the Spirit to our lives to live a cruciform life. So I happen to think that the way to do it, that's why I think at the bottom of this when he says be constant in prayer, we have to always have that spirit. That doesn't mean always fall on your knees and have a formal time of prayer, but that's a life of utter dependence and utter reliance upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to live ordinary love in our ordinary relationships by the mercies of God. Next. And this passage continues to progress. This is why, I'll be honest, I struggled with this one. Evie asked me how I was doing with the sermon. I said, well, it's easy to, it's easy to understand, but boy, I've never seen anything so hard to apply. This is a tough text, and that's why I said, I want you to fall in love with the mercies of God because that's the context. Jesus to loom large. Next, look with me at verse 14, and he goes on to challenging love. I thought the first one was challenging love. But then, see, that was just ordinary in the context of our relationships. Oh, now it's people who don't like you. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Listen to this. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn, grieve, lament with those who lament. Don't think more of yourself than you ought. You are not such hot stuff. Don't have such an inflated view of how right you are. In a sense, do you know what Paul is simply doing? He's applying Jesus' words that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? If you love only those who love you. See, if all I do is love Yankee and Giants fans. You know, my life could be really easy. You all root for the New York Yankees and the New York Giants, and I'm going to love all of you. Jesus is saying, if you love people who are just like you, same background, same history, think the same, feel the same about things, view politics the same, view everybody the same, he's going, if everybody's the same and you love everybody, he says, what is there, in other words, to kind of paraphrase Jack Miller's quote a little bit, what is there of the glory of God is that? You can, it's easy to naturally love people who think exactly like you. If all you do is hang out with people who are just like you, where's the glory of God? Because there is no difference between what you do naturally and what you can do by God's grace. But if you bless those who don't think like you, 
if you show hospitality to those who are different from you. So if those who lean more right than you and you lean more left, if you start to dialogue and listen, if you start to hang out with each other, if you start to befriend, and those who aren't real nice to you, you start to befriend, you start to look, how can I bless? How can I do that? And the question is, again, how do we do that? One commentator said, what Paul is calling us here to is a life of deep empathy, connecting your emotional life with theirs. He said, you are called to make an emotional identification with the person you are loving. He says, we are called here to a discipline, a very hard one, in which we stop and seek to understand the inner world of another person. Let me repeat that. See, what does it mean to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice, to be happy, to celebrate with those who celebrate? It means that you connect your inner world with their inner world, and the only way you do that is if you seek to understand what is the other person's perceptions, feelings, hopes, hurts, background, baggage, dreams, fears. See, to me, this is one of the places where the scriptures are amazing and how they all fit together. Because I don't know how you can enter the inner world of somebody else and really begin to empathize and identify and seek to understand without doing and following what James's instructions are when he says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. You know that James says, be slow to speak. In other words, don't immediately go, this is the scripture you need. This is what you need. I know what you need. I'll give you what. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Seek to understand their inner world. Seek to understand where they're coming from. Seek to understand. And again, the only way you're going to be able to do this, if you are utterly, I'm going to say this again, this is in the context of the mercies of God. To the degree that you're saturated with a gospel self-image is the only degree that you're going to be able to love like this. Because again, think about what the gospel says. Again, I'm going to quote Jack Miller because he was so influential in his discipleship of so many people. Jack Miller, and you've heard me say this before, he would have three things that he would say to cheer up for. He would speak over a crowd like this. Jack Miller was the man who started World Harvest Mission. It's now called Surge. Very influential in the PCA. And he would stand up and he would say, cheer up. You are a whole lot worse than you think. You think you're bad. Ah, You're a whole lot worse than you think. See, having this as part of your gospel DNA, by the mercy, this is the first step of by the mercies of God. I'm, all I'm doing is unpacking how verse 1 is the center of this passage. By the mercies of God, the first step is to understand how deeply you need mercy. You're a whole lot worse than you think. You see yourself then as no better than anyone else. Functionally, the people you're relating to, maybe your husband or wife, you relate to and you recognize you are not any better than anyone else. And he'd bring you face to face with that and he'd say, well, cheer up by the mercies of God. You are more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine or hope. 
or dream. Again, if you apply the mercies of God, if you functionally, if the mercies of God are looming large, what do you have to prove by your being right? The most absurd thing in the world is to try to validate yourself. If the mercies of God are real and becoming more real, existentially real in your life, it frees you. C.S. Lewis defined humility as unselfconscious, unself-aware. You are able to forget yourself, not even be aware of yourself. And if you're not aware of yourself, what are you free to do? You're free to enter into the inner world of somebody else. The reason we're justifying ourselves, we're trying to be right all the time, we're doing all that, is we're not functionally, I know we believe in the truth of the mercies of God, we're not functionally believing in the mercies of God. Because we're always proving ourselves. And then the last cheer up. So cheer up, you're worse than you think. Cheer up, you are more loved. You think you believe God's love. You really don't. The proof of believing God's love is the depth and the quality of your love. And lastly, he would say, cheer up. Come and die. Great invitation, right? It's a great way to come to life. Because what is blessing those who are mean to you? What is not repaying evil for evil? What is associating with the lowly? What is not being wise in your own sight? Not thinking too much of yourself. It's dying to your own self. It's dying to your vision, dying to your goals, dying to your ambitions, dying to your agenda. That's challenging love. And lastly, Paul moves on to what I call impossible love. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable on the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, verse 21, commentators call this the interpretive key to the whole text here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what you have here is a picture of New Testament holy war. Like you had the foreshadowing of all of this in the Old Testament with the holy war, and what you have here in the New Testament, because commentators tell us that that word overcome is a military word, meaning to overpower. And so the meaning is, do not be overpowered. Don't let evil overcome you. Don't let evil overpower you. But you win the war. You overpower it. And how? With goodness. The teaching is if you repay evil with evil, if you pray evil with, repay evil with revenge, if you repay evil with vengeance, evil has won. Now, commentators are real quick to point out this doesn't mean you let people abuse you. This doesn't mean you never put up boundaries. There are sometimes you have to get out of an abusive relationship and you have to put up boundaries. 
you can do that without seeking the person to get it. Seeking that vengeance, seeking that revenge, seeking that repayment. Tim Keller puts it best here. He has a tremendous insight when he says, the only way to defeat evil is with doing good to the one who has done harm. The only way to, do, to defeat evil is to forgive and love the person. He says another way to put it is, when we identify evil too closely with the evildoer, so to destroy evil is to destroy the evildoer, which is what we're seeking to do when we seek vengeance and re revenge. He says we unwittingly become the evildoer. And the classic illustration, of course, of this is in the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, if a good person tries to use the ring of power of the evil Lord Sauron to defeat and down the evil Lord. In other words, he's what is he trying to do? To use evil to destroy the evil. What happens? He becomes evil in the process. Dr. Keller goes on to say that the results of loving like this, doing good to the evil person, are first the spread of evil is stopped. Because what happens? You stop it from passing into you. What happens when you make the other person pay, when you want revenge, when you get a grudge, when you hold them, when you do this, the spread of evil is not stopped. The spread of evil passes into you. If your goal is revenge, getting evil, you've not overcome it with evil. It's passed into you. And the other thing that you do when, when you do that is you're playing God. Look with me at verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. Again, notice I, it doesn't say don't set up boundaries. Sometimes you have to do that. But do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Clearly what we're do is, to do is to allow God's wrath be God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. See, what happens when you don't leave room for God's wrath? The bottom line is you're putting yourself in the role of playing God. And what's wrong with that? Well, a lot of things. Let me just mention a couple. One, you can't handle the job. I can't handle the job. None of us can take on God's job description. See, when we're erecting and enacting God's wrath, do we really know what the other person needs? Do we really know? Do we have all the information? Do we have everything it takes to make a wise and skillful decision? And secondly, do we leave any room for the other person to repent? See, because think about this. One of two things can happen when you leave room for God's wrath. Either the person's going to repent, embrace God's solution for their evil, and God has still enacted wrath. Jesus got them in their place. Jesus got the wrath as their substitute. Or God will deal with it in his own way and in his own time. Again, either way, we're not involved. And again, the only way for us to live like this, to love like this, this is impossible, not just difficult. This is why I call this impossible love. This is impossible without the cross. 
See, the only way we're going to do, be able to do this and defeat evil is through the cross. Because what does the cross say? Earlier in Paul's letter, Romans chapter 5, he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. Did you hear that language? For if when we were, it doesn't say just fell short of the glory of God and sinned. If when we were flawed and made a few blunders and a few mistakes. But if when we were God's enemies, what does it mean to be somebody's enemies? It means to be hostile, to be at enmity, to hate, to be opposed. If when we were opposing and hostile to God, we were reconciled to him. What was God's vision, God's goal? Was it to destroy us? No, it was to reconcile us to him. It was to restore us. And how? Through the death of his son. And what is our life, to, what is the cruciform life? That our life, our functionally, functional style of relating would be patterned after the cross. That means patterned after our goal being restoration and reconciliation. We need to quit having the goal of being right and start having the goal restoration and reconciliation. Because that was God's goal. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, should we be saved through his life? Again, it comes down to your functional gospel self-image. What does the mercies of God mean? It means you were an enemy and God made you a friend. You were an enemy and God drew near. Allender puts it again, he says, love is always dependent unforgiveness. The extent to which someone truly loves. So listen to this. That means the extent to which we will love God and love others will be positively correlated to the degree that we are stunned and silenced by the wonder that our huge debt has been canceled. Let me read that again. The extent to which our love, we will love God and we will love others, will be positively correlated to the degree we are stunned and silenced by the wonder that our huge debt has been canceled. How much are we stunned and silenced by the wonder of the mercies of God? Let's pray. I pray that what we hear out of this is the mercy of God. Lord, in some ways, you know I struggled with this, especially in the sense of, I did not want to see this and just preach this as a series of principles, as a series of commands, as a series. I really want us, but it is. These are all imperatives. These are not options that the apostle lays out. But in the context, they are how to live out of the mercy of God. So I pray, I pray for my own heart. I pray for our hearts to be stunned by your mercy. I pray for us to, yes, be convicted. We don't love like this. This may make us uncomfortable, but we don't love the way the Bible says that we are to love. But if when we were your enemies, we were reconciled to you through the death of you, Jesus, how much more will we be saved from your wrath to come? Lord, I pray that we would 
grow in our ordinary love, be willing to tackle through the mercies of God the challenging love, and yes, battle in spiritual New Testament holy war, overcoming evil with good. Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.